It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Baldana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, as Yogi Berra once said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. That's the quote that leads a research report from this week's guest on what he and his team expect of the markets in 2022. And you know what? We're actually going to listen to him and maybe even let him gloat a little bit since his predictions for last year were pretty good. But Vildan, I, I have to define pretty good in the world of predictions. And, you know, it's going to sound a little bit like I sounded, you know, explaining my report card to my dad in college, that, that it's it's better than it sounds. You know, this this was a semester where the Grateful Dead uh, had six tour stops within driving distance of campus. You got to you got to grade me on the curve here. But 75 percent on his predictions uh, is really pretty good. I mean. I'll, I'll compare that to our own Cameron Christ, I think one of our most respected uh, columnists who grades his predictions every year as well. He was 75% as well. Um, he said that's the best he's ever been in making predictions. And this is a guy who had like a perfect SAT math score. Um, I think anything above 50% is an A in the predictions game, Bildana. What do you think? In the predictions game, probably not for when you're in high school, that's like not that good, I would say. <laughs> but 75%, when I read that, I also was impressed because last year was, as you know, so hard to predict given everything that was going on. But so speaking of our guest, I want to introduce Chris Harvey. He's the head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo. And Chris, I want to welcome you back to the show. And thank you and, and happy new year. And Chris, uh, before we get to the predictions, and by the way, everyone, I'm I'm uh, I'm recording this podcast in my bathroom with a blanket over my head <laughs> for very complicated reasons involving a a uh, gas main replacement on my street. So if you hear Voldana and Chris just burst out laughing, that that's that's the reason why uh, most likely. It's quite a spectacle to see. <laughs> it's really something. It, this is a new. I've I've you know I'm no stranger to humiliation, but I got to say this this is. Uh, this is a high high watermark for me, or maybe low watermark. I don't know, but uh, but Chris, I I want to unpack some of your predictions for 2022, but I want to talk first about the FOMC minutes that came out this week. Uh, you know, we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, about an hour after the the minutes hit the tape, and boy, kind of a nasty reaction. You know, the tone of it seems to be that not only will uh, the rate hikes come a little earlier than people were expecting, but also uh, I think the bigger surprise, the, the Fed sounds like they're they're going to want to wind down their balance sheet, let their balance sheet reduce a little bit, uh, you know, rather than reinvesting proceeds of, of their holdings uh, like they have in the past. 
What's your takeaway from the minutes? Is this um, is this a reasonable reaction to the market? You know, last time I looked, S and P down more than one percent in the minutes after after the uh, the moments after the minutes, and uh, you know, Nasdaq was already getting hurt. They're down composite down a two and a half percent, I think. Is this a rational reaction, or, or what do you think, Mike? I think it's a reasonable reaction. So there, there's a couple things to take away. Um, for a while, people have been questioning whether the Fed had had the wherewithal, the will to to fight inflation. There is talk about transitory for, for some period of time, actually too long a period of time. Powell uh, recently retired that phrase or said he was going to retire that phrase. And then when you listen to the minutes, they mean business. And, and I think people are finally realizing that the Fed will, need, will do what they need to do to fight inflation. And that's troubling. But more importantly, what's really happening underneath the surface and behind the scenes, real rates, you have to keep a very, very sharp eye on real rates. If you look at 10-year real rates, they're up almost 25 basis points from the start of the year. What we've been saying to clients and what we've noticed all of last year is as real rates go, much of the relative price in the equity market goes. So real rates go up, that cyclical trade works. Real rates go down and that long duration or that tech growth trade works. And what's happening right now is real rates are going higher, tech and high growth are rolling over. That's a big part of the market. And so we were down earlier today. This is just an acceleration. Uh, is it the right magnitude? I think it's reasonable. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me is, you know, we got this today on Wednesday. On, on Tuesday, we got that blog post from uh, Neil Kashkari, uh, long considered sort of the biggest of uh, in the Fed. Not a voter this year, but even him expecting uh, two hikes in 2022. I guess that's got to be kind of the floor of, of expectations now. You know, the market was pricing in two, maybe three, but I think when even the dovish, most dovish uh, member of the Fed uh, is expecting two, that boy, that it's a bit of uh, cold water in the face to some degree. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and what I also think is I, I was a little dumbfounded. Last year, I was a little dumbfounded because we were looking and we were listening to transcripts. We were looking at pricing. I had never seen in, in, in my two decades or more than two decades on Wall Street, this kind of pricing environment. I, at one time, I had asked one of my associates, hey, give me a handful of stocks that are raising price. He said, just pick any three. And, and at the end of the day, I was surprised that it's taken this long for the Fed to react. But now the Fed is reacting and, and you're seeing break-evens and you're seeing inflation expectations come down. The other thing that I think is also happening is there was a lot of talk about stagflation two, three, four months ago. Well, you have to take stagflation off the table because the Fed is fighting inflation. The other thing that's happening is we have February 1st coming up. February 1st is Chinese, kicks off Chinese New Year's. That's when goods start to slow into the US. Not saying the supply chain is going to be fixed, but really what the market is latching onto or what we think it'll latch onto is have we seen peak pressure or peak congestion? Are we going to be able to get rid of some of those loggerheads? Will we be able to make some improvements? And if so, that's really important because that has significant ramifications for pricing, multiples, and margins. So, Chris, speaking of all of these expectations and everything that's coming up, you and your team come out with uh, price targets for the S&P 500. As Mike mentioned in your intro, yours was spot on for last year. So I'm ho hoping you can sort of walk us through your calls for 2022 and, and all of the, the factors behind it and what your thinking is behind your price target and anything else you see coming up. Sure. Cer certainly. Maybe I'll just give you the, the big picture overview one of the things we've been saying is this year, as we roll into 2022, it's really about risk first and return second. When you're looking at, at 
peakish multiples on top of peakish growth, that's not a really bullish scenario. In addition to that, growth is decelerating whether you're looking at US GDP or whether you're looking at earnings growth. The Fed, as we now are, are very aware of, is going to become more aggressive and accommodations coming off the table. We're lapping some very difficult comps. And we may be hitting peak pricing and again, peak margins, which, which would put pressure downward on multiples. So we've talked about a 10% sell-off. We've talked about up in quality, down in risk. We've talked about margins and multiples. Where would you like to start? Well, well Chris, let, I'll start here. You know, I'm, uh, I'm just a guy sitting in his bathroom with a blanket over his head. So, you know, far be it for me to say, uh, but I would also grade predictions on sort of the boldness of, of predictions. And I'm going to start with your uh, prediction, 10% correction by summertime. Now, in most years, I think if you took any average years and made that prediction at the beginning of it, it's perhaps not that bold. You know, it's something that tends to happen, I think, more than half the time in, in most years, if if I'm correct. But it certainly feels like a very bold pred prediction these days, given the fact that, boy, it's been so long since we've had a real 10% prediction uh, correction in, in the market. Uh, they seem to have gone extinct, you know, but is Walk us through your thinking about why uh, we're likely to see one by summertime. You know, I'm, I'm assuming the Fed is, plays a role to some degree, but uh, yep. you know, what makes you confident enough to make that your sort of your first prediction for 2022? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things. First, let me say you're really pulling this blanket thing off very, very well. It's it's you know, people people at home <laughs> can't see this, but it's it's impressive. It's really impressive. A lot of guys <laughs> would have turned their video off, but. <laughs> Uh, but now back to our show, 10% pullback. Uh, there's a couple things there. And, and I'm, I'm going to be scattered. I'll be all over the place. But I want to bring you back to the late 90s, early 2000s. Late 90s, early 2000s, Mike, you probably remember this. There was a company called CMGI. CMGI had the naming rights to Foxborough Stadium in 2000. The stock was 160 at that point in time. Uh, I believe in 2002, the stock was 66, 60 cents, and they gave back the naming rights. What just happened at the Staples Center? Crypto.com. It's no longer the Staples Center, crypto.com. Gosh, that's really familiar, right? There is a, whether it's the Madden curse or whether it's the, the stadium curse, it's telling you we're getting close to the top in, in times of fraud. Those are, those are signs that we use and we look at, right? The, the other thing that we say and we talk about a lot, and, and you're also absolutely positively right, this 10% correction in normal times, not a big bold call, but here, since we haven't had a correction in a long time, it, it is a much bigger, bolder call. And that gets to the second point. The second point is there's a pervasive belief that the market can bend but not break, right? Market can go down 5%. We can break through the 50-day. We can break through. We can hit the 100-day, but we really can't collapse. Well, again, we're in the second year of recovery. Typically, in a second year of recovery, you have multiple compression and you have a lot of other interesting things happening. What you have is growth decelerating, you have a more aggressive Fed, you, you have, you're lapping very difficult comps, and you have the speculation. And when people turn tail, right? So one of the things that, that's helped a lot of these names is you've had money chasing performance. When the performance isn't there, then the money goes away. And we think that people are going to sell weakness for the first time in a while for fundamental reasons, for technical reasons. And I think the operative, another operative word for 2022 is normalization. We're going to use this, this word time and time again. We're going to get back to more normal times, whether it's consumer spending, whether it's volatility, um, or whether it's valuation. 
I love the point about the stadium naming rights. And, and even before the subprime crisis, I'm trying to remember there, I think there were a few uh, players in that who, who got some naming rights right before. Uh, I, I, I want to say it was 3Com Stadium uh, where the 49ers play. And we also have the FTX Arena, which is uh, which has been renamed. It's the Miami Heat Arena down in, in Miami. That was another yeah. recent rename. Yeah. Yeah, great, great indicator. Who knows if it's really true? Someone's got to do a deep dive on that, Vidvan. I, I nominate you to. to <laughs> I'll take look, care look of it. Look into all the stadium names throughout history. You know? Yeah, I'll take care of it. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. So, Chris, so you have this call for a a 10 percent correction that's in the first half of the year. And then for the second half of the year, I know I was reading one of your recent notes and you talked about how important the midterm elections are. And so I actually really haven't been hearing very much about this from people I I talk to. So maybe you can walk us through your thinking there as well and, and in relation to the market. So so another thing before before we get into that and we get into politics a little bit. We're going to talk about religion. No, um, no. Uh, what, what, what we're going to do is, uh, I, I want to lay the groundwork and I want to uh, level set things. What what we're saying and what we think we need is we need a repricing of risk, the systematic risk. This is not 07, 08, where systematic risk was through the roof. What this is is we think that we need a repricing of risk to bring in new investors. Things have gotten a little bit too frothy. Once that occurs, right, the consumer still has money. What we argue is that spending is going to normalize, but balance sheets are still strong. There's some some risk there. But overall, we just need a more attractive level to get aggressive. If and when we get that, we'll want to buy the market or we'll want to add risk into the portfolio, however you're positioned. One of the things that we've noticed, and we were looking for a catalyst in the second half of the year, we're going to have midterm elections. One of the things, uh, one of my associates does a very nice job on the political front and, and, and has done a good job over the last couple of years. Now it's kind of obvious, but not that long ago, we were talking about a shift, right? A shift from, from blue to red. And we've seen what happened in Virginia. I can't believe how close the race was in, in New Jersey for the governorship. And it's really telling you something. And so I think it's pretty consensus at this point in time. And I think most people believe there's going to be a red wave. And with that, you're going to have a split government. And typically, when you have a split government, not a lot of things get done, and, and the lack of government is good government as far as the markets are concerned. Um, traditionally, Republicans controlling that government, controlling the Senate is a good thing as well. We can argue about why that is, why that might be, but but just say we think this is going to be midterm elections will be the catalyst that we need to pull us out of the slump or the malaise that, that we expect to see over the summertime. So that call, it, it it's based on history, basically, and the way the market performs uh, with a Republican-controlled Senate. Because I, I look at this particular setup and I'm thinking, well, okay, at the, and I, you're right, you know, all the pundits seem to think there's going to be a red sweep and, and uh, Republicans will control most likely the House and, and quite possibly the Senate. 
Yeah, but I wonder, you know, fundamentally, uh, that seems to take stimulus completely off the off the table. I also would think, you know, any further tax reductions would be pretty unlikely, uh, you know, given the a Democrat still in the White House with with veto power. So it, it, that sense of history, she was enough to, to overcome sort of the fundamentals that are a little bit cloudier with with a Republican controlled Congress, you know, given, you know, what a tailwind stimulus was uh, leading up to this year. So so one, one thing I would just add to that is, and the Fed talks about this a lot, it's planning, right? If you go back to when we had the tax cuts, if I remember correctly, M&A slowed down because people didn't know what the tax situation was going to be. When you have a situation where it's pretty placid and people, people really know what the tax situation is going to be, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, they can plan better and, and they can move. Back then, well, one side wants to pay more, one side wants to pay less. But when you have a more stable type situation, the bid ask spread narrows and things can get done. So I, I don't, you know, I think about it a couple of different ways, but one way it could be positive is you just know that the tax situation is not going to change very much. And now one of the things that we keep saying is you've got a lot of cash on hand, rates are still incredibly low, credit markets for now are, are wide open. And as growth slows and opportunity is uh, more selective, that pushes people into that M&A. And, and again, if there's not much coming out of the government regulation-wise, tax-wise, we can see a lot more M&A activity. And, and eventually, that's usually a pretty good positive for the market. And then, Chris, I think for a while now, you had been saying that investors have been gaining confidence in the Fed's um, willingness to and, and ability to fight inflation. I think that was in one of your notes a couple of weeks ago. And then earlier this week, you reiterated that you think the Fed will avoid a policy error. So I'm wondering what makes you confident in that and, and how you're thinking about it. Right. So when we first started talking about it, it was a non-consensus thought. And one of the things that we began to see is we began to see the curve flatten and we also saw break-evens or inflation expectations come down before the Fed even talked about retiring. You know, what we were saying back then is either the market's going to push the Fed or the Fed will eventually do what they need to do. Now, what we think is the Fed is very open to doing what they need to do. The market's believing it. The curve has flattened. Break-evens are coming down. Our inflation expectations are coming down. And you see from the minutes that they, they mean business. And, you know, a lot of people have brought this up. I, I don't know how to handicap this. I don't know what this means. But it's funny that uh, Chairman Powell, right after it was announced he was going to be reappointed, got a lot more aggressive. And, and a lot of people point that out and say, huh, that's really interesting. And maybe that has something to do with it. But at the end of the day, they're saying all the right things. They're doing all the right things. They're doing what they would, you would expect them to do. Uh, labor market's in a, a decent spot. And they really do have to fight inflation. The, the funny thing now for us is we're beginning to see things that we think are transitory. We think that we're either at peak pricing or possibly very close to peak pricing. We think at the beginning of February, you've got a shot at improving the supply chain, which puts downward pressure on pricing. And so as they get more aggressive and, and as the market and some of the market dynamics play out, they may not have to be as aggressive as a lot of people think. Well, we will see. Uh, and the last thing I would point to, and this, this comes from our economics team, they did a really nice job on this. It's not all supply. 
One of the things they point out, if you look at retail sales, retail sales is up 20% from the pre-pandemic peak in 20 months. Post-great financial crisis, it took years for that to occur. So the demand side has been off the charts. And we used to joke around with people that last year, the, the, what the consumer would say is, if you raise prices 10%, we'll take two. Now, they didn't actually say that, but it gave you an indication of, of how price, they didn't care about price at that point in time. And, and now we think they will be a lot more price conscious. And, and many of these factors will lead to um, lower inflation. And, and I think, again, many more people now that they see the curve flattening, break-evens coming down, and things beginning to slow, more confidence in the Fed, and the Fed is saying all the things you would expect them to say as you start to uh, a tightening cycle. Chris, one prediction I, re- I really found interesting, uh, number eight on the list, I think we're jumping around here. Yeah, we're sure. counting down uh, like uh, David Letterman style, but uh, uh, let me just read it to you and uh, talk about this a little bit. With about one quarter of US household assets invested in equities and the Fed retiring the transitory phase, the Fed's implied put is lower while the equity market's economic real impact is higher. This, uh, that's a good one to me. I think it's, you know, to some degree, you know, question one, I guess, would be, you know, is that temp- part of that 10% correction trying to sort of price, figure out where the price of that put is? And walk us through what you, you know, what you mean about the economic real impact is higher. Um, but, you know, would, would a really weak stock market sort of, Depress consumer spending, consumer confidence, and and eventually, you know, put that Fed put into play. Walk us through how that you see all that playing out this year. So, so the first thing I'll say is that that's a savvy veteran market call out. That 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 is really one of the things that we've been harping on, and it's kind of you know people aren't quite grasping it just yet because what we're saying is, hey, balance sheets are a lot stronger, no doubt about it, right? House prices are up, equity prices are up, people have more cash. Balance sheets are fantastic, but what they're missing is there's a lot more equity risk on the balance sheet today than there's ever been. If you look back to the percentage of the balance sheet, a decade ago is about 13%. It's now about 24%, um, depending on the day, but let's just say 24%, close to a quarter. As the equity market waxes and wanes, that's going to influence sentiment a lot more today than it did a decade ago. So in any sort of equity market sell-off, sentiment should get a lot heavier or not be all that attractive. And that should spill over into discretionary spending. People don't feel as rich. And so now all of a sudden, the stock market plays a much bigger component into spending and economic growth than it did before. And there's this kind of vicious cycle. Now, as far as the put, if the market falls apart, and we're not expecting the market to fall apart, we're expecting a, a market correction, but you wouldn't expect a lot of people always believe that the Fed will step in and, and save the market. We're not of that opinion. You know, what the Fed tries to do, it, it tries to keep the, the liquidity flowing. It tries to keep the, the machine greased. But a lot of people will say, wow, the Fed's always trying to save the equity market. That's not our opinion. That's not our belief. But at the end of the day, the more conventional wisdom is the Fed will not react to the equity market um, or the Fed will react to the mar- equity market later rather than sooner. And that's basically because they're heading into a tightening cycle. If the market falls apart, the market falls apart. They have a dual mandate. That dual mate is price stability and maximum employment. And we pretty much satisfied both equations. Because the equity market goes down, that's really not their problem. It becomes a bit more their problem because of this relationship. 
and because of the allocation to equities. But we really just don't think that the Fed's going to tighten rates. The Fed's going to take accommodation off and, you know, buyers beware and everyone's a big boy or big girl. Figure out what kind of risk you're willing to, to sleep with or, or what kind of risk you're comfortable with in the portfolio, because we're going to have a lot more volatility as we go forward in time. This is not again. This is no longer the market can bend but not break. The market will break at some point in time. We will have bigger pullbacks and it will feel a lot worse than it actually is because we haven't had that in a long time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. So then what do you recommend for clients or, you know, when people are asking you what they should be favoring in this environment and for the remainder of this year, what do you recommend to them? Because I feel like one big question that popped up this week was like, can what happens with tech if we do continue to see higher yields? And so, so what do you tell them? So what we tell them, so from the 5,000 foot level is what you want to do is you want to go up in quality and want to go down in risk. And when we talk about quality, it's companies with better balance sheets. You want cash on the balance sheet. You want less leverage. You want better management teams, um, good stewards of capital. So companies that um, have higher ROIC or ROEs. And then you want to stay away from the poor secular stories. So you want to focus on more attractive profit margins. And as far as risk, we, we just want to stay away from the more risky um, type, type stories because we just don't think you're getting paid. A year and a half ago, that was a different story. Right now, you're not getting paid for that. You can exploit this or you can institute this philosophy with this belief in, I think, almost any portfolio. And it really just depends on your risk tolerance and, and your tax situation, how, how you do that. We're much more focused on factors and style. And one of the things that we like about quality is, one, you're not paying up, right? You're not paying through the nose for higher quality. Two, you're late in the cycle. And usually late in the cycle is the right time for quality. Quality does better when growth is slowing down uh, as opposed to early in the cycle where growth is really accelerating. You hear the phrase dash for trash and, and so on and so forth. Late in the cycle, it's, it's, it's great or much better. And the last thing, and this is something that's, that's near and dear to our heart, we find the return distribution. In other words, quality does much better to the downside. It, you can participate to the upside, but really, our focus is on the downside and quality should help you in that down tape and should help you protect that portfolio again. So, you know, however you do it, however you institute it, you know, we, we can talk about different ways. But really, you want to take on more quality. You want to reduce the risk in the portfolio. It, it's time to start building up some dry powder for a rainy day. Yeah, that reminds me of... Uh... One of the things we talked about the last time you were on the show about a year ago was, uh, and you sort of nailed this one on the head, I think, for 2021 is, you know, you really talked about how the growth at any price type of trade is, it was just done last year. And boy, that that came true in kind of a dramatic fashion uh, later in the year. 
I wonder, is that dead for good, do you think? I mean, what would the conditions we would need uh, to see to get people talking about the high-flying, uh, you know, long-duration sort of growthy names again? Is it is it as simple as a tightening versus loosening monetary policy, do you think? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a couple things, and in, in, uh, I'll try and be succinct, but I probably won't be um, because <laughs> it, it's not so much about a level, but it's more about, I think, an event. What you need to see is a couple of things just on the monetary policy side. Again, what I think is going on is as real rates go higher, inflation expectations come down, the probability of stagflation comes off the table, right? These high flyers do much better in a stagflationary environment than in a, a, a more benign economic environment. The other thing is, as we've pointed out, is real rates are tied to relative pricing or have been tied to relative pricing in the equity market. Real rates were negative 100 on the 10-year, negative 120 basis points, which was historically low. Um, they're up 25 basis points from the start of the year. So I think they're in the mid-80s at this point in time. If you see real rates continue to ratchet higher, you know, at some point, we've got to make a call where rates are go- going to level out. But I don't think they get too flat this year. They could. But definitely, if they get to flat, it's another conversation um, because if they get to flat, what that means is the Fed in all likelihood got very aggressive and the economy is going to slow down. And what's happened is you've probably had a bigger sell-off in these names. And more importantly, the last thing that we're looking at is, and I'll throw another blast from the past out there. There was a, comp- there was a, a, a fund called the Munder Net Net Fund. So in the late 90s, it was a high-flying internet um, stock portfolio. And, and a friend of mine and a former associate was a, was a trader there. And Every day in the sell-off, the PM would come in and give him more to sell and more to sell, and he would just knock things down and knock things down. And it wasn't until those sell orders, until basically that capital was reallocated. So what, what happens in the equity market? Whether you like it or not, money chases performance. And then when performance isn't there, money leaves. So you need to see that wash out. So what we'd like to see is we'd like to see a, a repricing of real rates. We'd like to see us move further in time. We'd like to see another push down in, in valuations, not so much valuations, but just performance. And then we'd like to see that, uh, I'll use a very nice graphic phrase, that cathartic puke, where finally we see that the sellers exhausted and, and the final liquidations. You know, and, and that's just hard to, it's hard to gauge. It's, it's going to happen on this date at this time. No, we don't know, but these are the signposts that we're using. So you, you kind of you kind of know it when you see it too. Yeah. I guess you know that 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 one real ugly day at the end of a correction. I guess is uh, you know yeah. a capitulation day that, that everyone waits for. That, that that's exactly it. And and what we said this year is we think the growth at any price type um, stocks are going to have a, a heavy first half because real rates are going to go higher and, and because of what you're seeing today. But we left the door open to the second half because you could see a slowing economy. You could see that repricing. And you could see that that cathartic upchuck, or you could see the the sellers exhausted. Chris, one of the big things that we were just talking about, and one of the big stories from this week, is this yield spike. And I'm wondering if if the what we're seeing this week is any different from what we've seen in the past. Like, is there any reason to believe that this won't be over by next week, for instance? Uh, th- thought or two there. Um, some people are asking, asking me, hey, is it, is it a good time to buy growth in tech and so on and so forth? Let's just talk short term. Let's talk long term. The move down has been very aggressive. It wouldn't, um, this is not a prediction. 
But it wouldn't be surprising to someday over the next couple of days to see a snapback. All of a sudden, rates start to fall because, you know, pick a reason, and, and we see a snapback. But at the end of the day, the Fed is going to be more aggressive. I think we have a fair amount of confidence in that. If the Fed, our belief is if the Fed's going to be more aggressive, then we should continue to see that lift in real rates. Now, as we look longer term, a lot of our clients are saying, well, interest rates are going to go through the roof and this, that, and the other thing. If you look at the last two tightening cycles, the 10-year actually went lower once the Fed or 10-year yields actually went lower for at least a year once the Fed started raising rates. And so it's not clear to me that as the Fed starts raising rates that that 10-year nominals are going to go higher, right? They may begin to stall out. And, and I think that that's important to note. And, and then the last thing is what we think is the Fed will push the front end to wherever they need to go. But eventually what's going to happen, we're late in the cycle. The economy is already slowing down. As you take stimulus off, that's going to slow things down more. I'm not sure how aggressive they can be at this point in time. And so when we get a more stable environment, when we get a slower environment, then we can start talking about moving back into those secular growth stories. But for now, we think it's especially as you go out on the risk curve, it's still a little bit too risky and we still haven't seen you know, the events or the situations that we need to see play out just yet. Tighten up your straitjackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Valdana, I agree with Chris. I'm not sure how aggressive the Fed can get. I'm going to tell you, Valdana, though, I'm going to get very aggressive with my craziest thing of the week. Uh, possibly a little too aggressive. I'm, I'm actually a little worried about this one. Um, so if this is the last time we talk uh, because of the reaction to my crazy things, it's been nice knowing you guys. I will say, though, to be true to the craziest thing I saw in weeks, I, I'm going to have to stick with it and, and follow through and, and tell you what it is. But I want to hear yours first. What, what do you got for us, Valdana? Mine is courtesy of Matt Levine, who wrote about this in one of his columns this week. And he pointed out that the UK branch of, of Santander Bank is trying to recover $175 million that they accidentally sent to tens of thousands of people on Christmas Day. And so Matt, Matt Levine's suggestion is just put out a press release and say, Santander UK just gave out $175 million in Christmas presents to thousands of people. You know, wow, what, what, ha- have people say, wow, what a good, good bank this is. And I, I really like that. And I doubt that they'll follow, <laughs> follow through with the suggestion, but it's a really good one, I think. The, the assumption being that the marketing value of uh, the, the earned media, as they say, from exactly. It's, it's interesting. He might be onto something there. That's a big spend, though. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Regardless or not, I think I might open a, an account with uh, with Santander just in, just in case. <laughs> in case it happens again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Chris? What's the craziest thing you saw this week? You know, I, I've been racking my brain over this, and, and I, I've come up with a whole lot of nothing. But the coolest, <laughs> craziest thing I have seen in, in recent, I will say recent weeks, Dave Grohl did a cover of Barry Manilow's Copacabana. So if you haven't seen it, you got to check it out. It is fantastic. No I will check that out. You can pull it up on YouTube. It's super cool. And it's something as equity markets melt or, or you know, roll over. It's something that could brighten you up or cheer you up. So that's we'll, pretty good. We'll leave it on that one. That's pretty good. Anything else, Chris? That, that's a pretty good one. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you live with that one <laughs> unless you got something better. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> All right, I'll give you mine. And again, you know, 
if this ends up getting me canceled, it was nice knowing you guys. Best of luck to the new co-host of, of what goes up. But I have to be true to, to really revealing the craziest thing I saw in markets in the week. And this is courtesy of the New York Post, uh, which right there, you know, brace yourself. Adjust your chin strap, as they say. Um, it's about a reality TV star named Stephanie Mato or Mato. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. She was the star of a show called 90 Day Fiance on TLC. I, I've never seen it. Have you seen the show, Bildana? I have. You have seen this? Uh, unluckily, I, I've seen it as well. My, my okay. wife okay. has watched it a few times and I've been stuck watching it. It draws you in. Okay. All right. So, so you guys are, are familiar. So this woman, apparently after the show, gained a, a, a very strong following of fans on social media. Uh, and she started... <laughs> I, I can't even, I, I'm so in trouble for this, but I, I need to get it out. I read this story. It was, you know it was trending on this. Twitter. Yeah. Some, some fans suggested uh, that if she were to pass gas into a jar, they, they would purchase uh, that jar of, of flatulence. Uh, as uh, the New York Post put it, she launched, <laughs> launched a gassy venture peddling her fancy flatulence to strangers and blew away people on social media when she recently announced that she makes more than blank a week doing this so it's time to play prices right guys how much do you think <laughs> this woman makes per week with this business endeavor I, I, I keep in mind this is a pretty high margin product when you think about it you know it's it's the uh it's just the jar really it's just but the Chris, jars what, yeah. what, what, and shipping what's your, potentially what's your guess per per week weekly income yeah not a not a per uh a jar basis, but but uh, per okay. week. I, I don't think they gave the per jar cost. Uh, I'll say twenty five thousand dollars. That's 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 not bad. Fifty grand a week. For, for wow. Fifty. Wow. But here's the problem. <laughs> here's the problem. She did it too much. She did. She <laughs> the, the demand. <laughs> oh boy. The demand was so high that she had to adjust her her diet to accommodate oh, the demand. So. So she started eating, uh, it said her, her diet included black bean salad, onion and <laughs> ham and pepper omelets. I got to say, not that far different from my normal diet, uh, as, which tells you something. And, and what happened is she suddenly was overcome with uh, chest pains and she thought she was having a heart attack, got rushed to the hospital. And, and the doctor said, no, it's not a heart attack. You've just been uh, eating too many gassy foods and we recommend you, you stop this and, uh, take some uh, uh some gas alleviating medicine so her it only lasted a few weeks i think she netted two hundred thousand dollars doing this but here's my favorite part and and what uh really uh qualifies it for the craziest thing i've seen in markets this week is she said final quote of the story i think everything happens for a reason and although my fart selling days were over i am going to save the money i made and i'll put some into crypto perfect 20 2021 and 2022 a uh, story and and ending to a story. Yes, yes. But I think I don't know. It was a false alarm on that heart attack. I I worry that if she puts all this money into crypto, that it may induce an actual heart attack given the volatility. I don't know. I I not a financial advisor here, just a guy with a blanket over his head sitting <laughs> in the bathroom. But if she's listening, I would I would advise maybe uh, I don't know some quality some quality stocks like Chris suggests and and not putting that that very hard earned money into crypto. Just me. Mike, this is your this is your weirdest week. You're hiding under a blanket. 
And your weirdest thing is the weirdest thing that you've potentially ever flagged. Something's gone wrong, very wrong in my life, Valdana. I don't know what it is, but uh, it can only go up from here in 2022. Let's hope. We'll we'll see. Anyway, Chris, uh, great to talk to you. I can understand if you never want to associate with with me again after that one. I can Uh, too. But, so sorry. So look, sorry I asked you to come on. If you can look past it, we, uh, we'd we love to have you back on uh, again soon. Thanks, guys. And as always, very informative and very entertaining. Much appreciated. Thank you for coming back on. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.